You're listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Hello, everybody out there in Bitcoin land. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets, a show where I talk about Bitcoin, banking, geopolitics, freedom, all sorts of stuff. I try to make a cohesive worldview out of all these different topics, in my opinions. Today, we have a jam-packed show. I have news items out the yin-yang. I even had to cut some off. And Altcoinville, I talk about Bitcoin maximalism and blockchain maximalism. It's my response to Eric Voorhees' newest blog post. Our featured article for today is Nassim Taleb. He's the author of Black, The Black Swan, but he has a new Medium post out called The Intellectual Yet Idiot. And so I, it was a fun read, so I wanted to talk about it. The last part of the show, I, I quickly go into some insights on Janet Yellen's recent speech that she gave at Jackson Hole. And I realize that's a few weeks old already, and they did just do the September decision on, on interest rates which they predictably did not raise them, and anybody should be able to see that by now. But these insights go into the future. You know, it kind of builds a narrative. What is the narrative that they're building here? And so I break that down. But before I get into the main show, I want to apologize for being a little bit late on this episode. I try to do it weekly, but I have been stretching it out to like maybe 10 days. But I have some uh, personal news for you guys. My wife is pregnant again. This will be our fourth kid, and she's been really sick, like, you know, morning sickness, except it's all day sickness. She hasn't been able to help with the work around the house, and I've had to move my office. I lost my office, and so I'm moving furniture, buying new furniture, putting furniture together, and, and doing all that sort of stuff. So I, I've, my free time has been a little bit limited. We also are getting ready to go on our family vacation. This year we're going down to uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. We're, we're super, super psyched. I, I've wanted to move down to Mexico for a long time. Now, I've been back in the U.S. now for full-time for three, maybe almost four years. And I've, I've, I'm ready to move. <laughs> I'm ready to get out of here. Um, and we went down to Mexico in February for, well, just the wife and I went down there for Anarchapoco. It was a good time. She is a beach rat, so she stayed on the beach for hours and hours while I was at the conference, but uh, it was a good time. And we tried to go off the beaten path a little bit, you know, find some local restaurants. We got on the bus and just rode it for a long, long ways all the way around the bay, got off on some uh, different areas and went around to areas that didn't look like they didn't look like they were tourist areas and we never felt we never felt like in danger or threatened or or anything like that everyone talks about how mexico's so dangerous especially acapulco there's drug cartels there is there is stuff that happens around there but uh, i th i think chicago is way more dangerous if someone tell me they go to a, a vacation in chicago i'd be like oh man but if someone tells me to go to Acapulco, I'd be like, have fun. Anyway, this time we're going down to Puerto Vallarta. And like I said, if, if we do move down there in the next year or two, then we want to scope out some different places. Puerto Vallarta, what's different about that than the, than Acapulco is it's a little bit more touristy. It's a little bit smaller. It's a little bit cleaner. It's a little bit more expensive. I'm not happy about the expensive part, but, uh, 
you know, it has a different clientele or it, it makes it a little bit different there. So, yeah. And plus, it's a cheaper flight for us. I mean, Acapulco is there's only like one or two flights from the U.S. every day. But Puerto Vallarta, there's like six. So it's a lot cheaper to get there. So family can come down and stuff like that. But, yeah, we're going to check it out. Spend a week there. Do our thing. Relax. Um, if anybody knows anything about Puerto Vallarta, like good, good restaurants to go eat at or maybe good things to do uh, out of town, like good day trips, something, that would be cool. Pass those along to me, please. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. Let's get right into bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. This is a part of the show where I try to cover news items, both large and small, from Bitcoin to banking to politics. If you guys have a story you'd like me to cover, send it to me via Twitter or via the website. Let's jump right in. Japan is back in the Bitcoin news cycle again with a story on Bitcoin.com via Jamie Redman. The The headline is, Japanese BitGirls show brings blockchain voting cryptocurrency to TV. It looks like they'll be using counterparty tokens to, I guess, do voting on like a reality show TV. They say you'll be voting for like what they wear, um, how they stand, you know, things of that nature. I don't know if it's going to be an X-rated show, but it definitely involves girls doing things for money. And I mean, I'm fine with that, obviously, but I won't probably won't let my daughters watch this show. The creators say that they are going to be broadcasting it. Well, it's going to be a weekly show and they're going to be broadcasting online, both in English and Chinese. Well, with subtitles, English and Chinese subtitles. While the tokens themselves are Bitcoin, are not Bitcoin. They use the Bitcoin network, adding bloat, but it exposes millions of people to the possibility of future applications. Uh, they also say they're going to have like this kind of private chain or private layer called Mijin, Mijin, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, to deal with the transactions. So maybe it won't add bloat. I mean, it'll add some bloat because they'll be trading these and things, but, uh, you know, it's not like every vote you cast is going to be a transaction. At least that's what it seems like. The, these tokens will be tradable for Bitcoin on the Zaif exchange out of Japan. So check that out. The sociopath class is added again. They think, oh, let's do some capital controls. This is a story from the Wall Street Journal back on September 9th. And the headline is, Capital Controls, Not Global Accords, Touted as a New Fix for Currency Volatility. Currency volatility is one of the many symptoms of and threats to the global economy's long malaise. But unlike former days when exchange rate pressures risked tearing up economies, currency accords are becoming anachronistic in some key policy circles. Capital controls, long anathema in the West, are now touted as the policies du jour. Cross-border restrictions on capital such as limits on foreign buying or selling of short-term bonds or currencies could avert potential damage without the need to intervene in exchange rates, proponents argue. The dollar surge has accompanied plummeting exchange rates for a host of emerging market and advanced economies. Several bouts of volatility in foreign exchange markets fueled by central banks vying against one another for growth prompted calls for the G20 largest economies to draft a new global deal to manage currency values. Many analysts 
and economists called for a modern-day Plaza Accord to tame damaging currency swings and prevent a dangerous cascade of tit-for-tat currency interventions. Back then, the 1985 deal between the U.S., France, Germany, Japan, and the U.K. orchestrated an appreciation of the dollar toward a dollar to ward off a dangerous swell of support for protectionist trade policies in the U.S. Now, this is one of the things I found very interesting. This is from the International Monetary Fund Chief Economist Maurice Otzfeld. Quote, I wouldn't see the G20 embarking on a new plaza accord or some grand scheme of that sort, which would really force them to subjugate national, monetary, and fiscal policies into an exchange rate goal. That's something that's simply not going to happen. Now imagine him saying that or the IMF saying that 20 years ago. In 1995, they would have never said that. The growth of kind of nationalism maybe or uh, the growth against globalism, globalization and those type of things. That is forcing these people to change their tune, to change their strategies. But they think they're doing something great. I mean, it's the policy choice du jour. It's ridiculous. Capital controls never fix anything. Capital controls end up distorting the economy way worse than ever. It's going to make dislocations in the economy worse, not better. Floating exchange rates are good. But the reason why the economy, their economies haven't recovered is because they refuse to let the interest rates be set by the market. They refuse to let the market function. So they think, oh, there must be something wrong with our capital controls or the way the amount of freedom we give people. We need to tweak that to get what we want. Well, no, fucking let go, man. Just let go of the economy, let go of the interest rates and let stuff set to fair market value. That's what you have to do. You also have to use sound money because you can't just print it out and start buying stocks and crap like they're doing all over the world. So yeah, the plunge protection team. Remember that? I talked about that on a previous episode. They outright buy stocks. The, the Fed or not the Fed, but, uh, the, the president has a working group that outright buys stocks to balance the market or to pump up the market. So just let go people. That's the problem is you cannot let go of the power. I know it's like the ring of Sauron or something. Do you guys remember Professor Bitcoin? He was back from 2014. He testified in front of Congress and he said that he expected it to be, uh, the price of Bitcoin to be sub $10 by the mid, uh, sorry, by the middle of 2014. I mean, he's obviously so wrong. He obviously didn't understand what he was talking about. This was a professor in economics from Boston University. I linked to the Bitcoin wiki entry for Professor Bitcoin. Mark T. Williams is his name. Anyway, I got thinking about that because of an article on Bitcoin Magazine by Kyle Torpy called Some Economists Really Hate Bitcoin, an Overview. And he goes through a couple Nobel laureates here, Krugman and Stiglitz. And I wanted to start with Stiglitz's comments because um, he inadvertently pumps Bitcoin. This, These are recent comments that he made. So this is what Joseph Stiglitz said about Bitcoin. The main use of Bitcoin has been to circumvent tax authorities and regulation. And I think the U.S. did the right thing in trying to shut it down. 
oops, it's really good for this stuff, and the government is trying to shut it down. Not that it has shut it down, but it's trying to. It has not been able to, up to this point, shut it down. He must have caught himself right there as he was saying that because then he goes back and corrects it. Quote, and I think effectively it has done that. Everybody knows that this is what Bitcoin is for. It's aimed directly at the banks and the governments. Krugman has written about this twice, or Bitcoin twice, and both times he quoted the same article by Charlie Strauss. So, um, and the, the title of this, the Charlie Strauss article is kind of funny. It's called Why I Want Bitcoin to Die in a Fire. This is, this Strauss article has been given credence by Krugman, cited twice. And this is what Strauss concludes in his, in his piece. To editorialize briefly, Bitcoin looks like it was designed as a weapon intended to damage central banking and money issuing banks with a libertarian political agenda in mind to damage states ability to collect tax and monitor their citizens financial transactions. Bingo. These economists know what's going on. Krugman cited this. They want Bitcoin to die. They know what's going on. It's pure propaganda. Pure 100% propaganda. And especially with Bitcoin at over $600 now, this is pure propaganda. And these economists are going to have to answer some hard questions. Why was, why were you wrong so, so badly? I mean, <laughs> they are, they are so wrong on monetary policy in general and how to balance the economy, how to make a working economy. Why, why would anybody expect them to be right about Bitcoin? Why would anybody trust them? You know, I have this kind of motto that if I'm told to do it by the government, it's probably not some in my best interest. It's not something I want to do. And it's the same with these economists. They've been wrong so much. So we know that the opposite of what they say is probably true. So if Bitcoin is bad, that means Bitcoin is really good. You don't even really have to understand anything about economics or Bitcoin to know that these guys are full of shit. And you should believe the opposite of what they tell you. Same with mainstream media. I mean, this is all, it's all connected. It's all tied to this uber gigantic state that we're under. And, um, you know, don't trust them. Don't believe them. But yeah, check out this article. It's pretty good by Kyle Torpy on Bitcoin Magazine. This next piece really isn't a news item, but I wanted to drop it in the podcast somewhere. I recently stumbled across this. It's a study by the Rand Corporation into the size and makeup of darknet markets. It's titled Internet Facilitated Drug Trade. Obviously, there's a link in the show notes. So you can, if you want to dive into it in more depth, I mean, there's tons and tons of information in there. Uh, but I'll just mention a few highlights here. So they estimate between 14 and $25 million worth of Bitcoin are spent every month on the darknet markets for drugs. And that's as of January of 2016. The largest category is cannabis, followed by prescription drugs. And I was surprised that like opioids and, and some of the harder drugs or quote unquote hard drugs, that, that was a very small percentage. But they did a good job of describing their methodology, how they went through that. You know, they used uh, reviews or feedback of the sellers uh, or the, the customer's feedback of the sellers. 
So uh, that's how they kind of used it because you can't really tell if a purchase was made. Uh, they also have um, other things in there like they they very interesting. So a, a vendor will put up an ad for say some weed or something, some cannabis. And if they run out of stock, instead of taking that ad down, because they lose their reputation, they'll lose all that good feedback if they post it again when they have new uh, new goods. So what they do is they'll just jack up the price really high. So if it's usually, say, 50 bucks for a certain quantity, they'll jack it up to $5,000 for that same quantity so that that ad can stay active, but no one in their right mind is going to buy it. So I, I, that's one little interesting tidbit I found in there too. Uh, but check it out. This is a big thing in the space. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this being the, the use case for Bitcoin. I don't know if that is really because, I mean, if it's $14 million worth of Bitcoin every month, uh, that's really nothing when you look at the volume on the exchanges and uh, the volume on the blockchain in general. So, but the use case here, this, is a very inelastic demand curve for this use case. If the price of Bitcoin is $20, it doesn't matter. They'll just buy what they need and spend it. If the price of Bitcoin is $2,000, it doesn't matter because they buy it and spend it. Buy it and spend it. I don't know how much this really is kind of backstopping the Bitcoin price. It does put a consistent demand for buying Bitcoin, but at these price levels, I don't know if you can say that. At below maybe a hundred bucks or something like that, this might be have put a floor on the price. But at six hundred dollars, who who's to say how much? I think it's not very significant at this point. Some people will look at you know the block reward, the subsidy, and saying, oh, if this is half a million dollars a day, then in, in the darknet market volume, uh, that is half of the block subsidy, then, you know, the half of the price is from these darknet markets. But no, that's, you know, th that money is being turned over inside of that market multiple times. I mean, it could be, say, a total of $2 million worth of Bitcoin that it's just being circulated every three or four days inside of that market. So we can't say that any specific portion of the subsidy is going towards the darknet markets on a daily basis. You, you can't really make that claim. But it is a use case, and it's a very important one. I mean, just the fact that it is used for these, these questionable or uh, darknet things means that Bitcoin works. Bitcoin's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It's censorship resistant. And that's a huge, huge vote for the viability of Bitcoin in general. Two smaller stories I have here for bits and pieces before we move on to Altcoinville. The remittance corridor between South Korea and the Philippines is being reported at 20% of Bitcoin or Bitcoin is being used for 20% of that corridor's volume, which is amazing. Um, I've, I've seen a couple people talk about Ripple in the last couple days. Don't buy into Ripple's hype. They have, yeah, a lot of banks signed up. They have a lot of trials. They've raised $55 million or whatever recently. But zero remittance is sent through Ripple. Zero. It's all trials. 
So do not, until they have one dollar of actual remittance sent, don't believe it. There's zero proof in the pudding. Zero. Don't fucking believe these people. So yeah, Bitcoin is growing in remittance. Uh, the reliance on kind of apps being used for remittance is, is growing in that part of the world. So I can see this use case growing. The other real quick article I wanted to mention here, it isn't Bitcoin related. This is a kind of Europe related. Yeah, I've talked about Europe a lot in the past. I mean, this is from Bloomberg. They're, they're stuck. They're stuck with negative rates, no ability. They cannot buy enough. They cannot push rates much lower. They're starting to buy junk bonds, right? Or comp corporate bonds with central bank money. It's ridiculous. They're stuck. Everyone knows they're stuck. And the minute they try to take their foot off the gas pedal, it's going to crash. So check that out. Again, those two links are in the show notes for more. Let's move on to Altcoinville. Altcoinville. Welcome to Altcoinville, the part of the show where I talk about all things altcoin, the good, the bad, the stupid, the idiotic, the insane. <laughs> There's just so many bad projects. Um, I take a skeptical approach here, as everybody should. I take a skeptical approach with Bitcoin as well, and Bitcoin Layer 2. You, you should default to uh, thinking everything is a scam and then getting evidence that it's not a scam or some evidence to trust these people. If if it has the term blockchain, it's not like, oh, I need to trust them. Oh, that's interesting. I, I want to buy some. <laughs> no, come on now. Blockchains are not going to save the world. You should not blockchain all the things. You should not even decentralize all the things. There's one application as of now and most likely in the future for many, many years. One application is money. Money is the blockchain application. I was thinking about this the other day. I think this idea of blockchain maximalism came from Several years ago, maybe four years ago now, when Andreas was talking about uh, Bitcoin being the first app that runs on the blockchain. And that got everybody, everybody's gears spinning and thinking about what's the next app to be on the blockchain. Now, I don't blame Andreas for this. I think he is a very good thing for Bitcoin. He's a great speaker. He's done done fabulously for this space. But sometimes I think he's a little bit premature on things. And this is one of them. The blockchain maximalism that he started with, this is the first app. Bitcoin is the first app. So everyone was like, well, what's the next app? What else can we do? And, and Andreas might have even said a few things like XYZ can be on a blockchain. And that got people going. And now it's just gotten out of hand. Or it did get out of hand. Now it's starting to get cleaned up a little bit. But blockchains have one application. And that is money. If you decentralize money, if you take money out of the hands of the state and powerful corporations that lobby, that are basically part of the state, 
banks are part of the state. Media is part of the state. Um, these large corporations are part of the state. If you can take money out of their hands, the creation of money, the control of money, the ability to freeze it, confiscate it. If you take the money away from these people, the need to decentralize other things basically gets wiped away. If you can decentralize and secure the money, the need to decentralize everything else gets much, much less. And so blockchains, I think, the only app, at least for decades, is going to be money. And this brings me into the Bitcoin maximalist versus blockchain maximalist. These two ideas. I got thinking about this because Eric Voorhees wrote a blog post criticizing Paul Stork. Paul Stork was recently on Tour de Meester's new podcast, which Tour, if you're listening, good podcast. I enjoyed it. Paul, good job. Uh, I hope, Tour, I hope it doesn't turn into a blockchain podcast like Epicenter Bitcoin. Th- that's one of the problems with the interview podcast is you run out of people to interview. And so you have to start interviewing these scammers. I hope that doesn't turn into what happens to you, but. Good job on the first show. I I look forward to listening to more. So Eric Voorhees had a problem with what Paul Stork said on there. And he said that, well, I don't want to misquote him. Let me get the exact quote here. Non-Bitcoin blockchains are disrespectful to Satoshi. And he said a bunch of other things about scams. Um, Most of these things should be looked at as scams. I mean, Bitcoin should be looked at as a scam too. But there is some validating evidence or supporting evidence that it is not a scam so the like i always fucking say the default position should be that it's a scam only after you get supporting evidence should you believe that or trust them or believe it's not a scam so anyway eric Voorhees kind of ripped into him but he focused on this idea of bitcoin maximalism and where did the bitcoin maximalism come from because a lot of people in the space, maybe they stumbled upon this podcast. Maybe they have only been here for a few months, maybe a year. Or maybe they only, every week, they might read a couple things about Bitcoin. They're interested, but they're not obsessed like some of us are. Okay, so Bitcoin maximalism came from a blog post. It was coined by Vitalik in a blog post. And it was used as a a, a slur. A derogatory name for people saying that they don't have open mind. They're Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. They have blinders on. They cannot see contrary evidence. Of course, that is exactly the opposite of the case. Most people that are hardcore Bitcoin maximalists, or maybe we should call them Bitcoin uh, realists, or maybe even Bitcoin skeptics, these these hardcore people, they've gone through the whole blockchain idea. They've evaluated Bitcoin. Now, once you evaluate Bitcoin and you really take a hard look at it, you do a lot of reading. I mean, it makes big when you start studying Bitcoin, it makes you study other things like banking, finance, politics. It makes you look at these things. Once you do a big, deep dive down into this, you start vetting Bitcoin. 
you vet these ideas, you look at the technology, you listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of uh, people, you do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking. And you end up being less skeptical. And you support Bitcoin. You think it's a good idea. You think they have everything is uh, going according to plan so far. The project is trustworthy. But then you see these other blockchains. You see these other altcoins. And you think, well, I'm going to apply my same rigorous background check that I did of Bitcoin. And I'm going to do it with the blockchains, blockchain projects that I see. And you come away thinking it's a scam. And then you're told that you're blockchain or Bitcoin maximalist and you have blinders on and you can't look at contrary evidence and blah, blah, blah. No, it's because the people that agree with these blockchain projects or accept them or support them, they refuse to look at the evidence. Ignorance is bliss. Everything looks like it's going to save the world. Blockchains can fix world fucking hunger. They can clean the goddamn water. That's what you end up thinking. If you don't take a logical, evidence-based approach to these blockchain projects. Bitcoin maximalist is, it's a derogatory slur. So I, I'm, I like Bitcoin realist or Bitcoin skeptic, but I do like the term blockchain maximalist. And Eric Voorhees is definitely a blockchain maximalist. The whole, I mean, right when I started reading this, I thought of that Upton Sinclair quote. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Eric Voorhees is a pumper. He's a blockchain pumper. I mean, if you needed any other evidence, you can look at this article. He, he doesn't... He must grasp, he's a smart guy. He must grasp this. And the fact that he is putting this blockchain maximalist stuff out there, I can't help but think that he is fraudulent. He's committing fraud against these people, pumping this. And it's gray area. It is a gray area. It's an academic gray area, but I don't think he's this dumb. I really don't. All right. So this is where you start getting into this. Like I say, blockchain this, blockchain that can save the fucking world. It can do everything. And this is where it leads you. Listen to this paragraph. Of all the features and tools that could theoretically be built upon Bitcoin, most don't yet exist today. You have a use case requiring fast blocks. Bitcoin can't help you today. You have a use case requiring true untraceability. Bitcoin can't help you today. You have a use case requiring 20 transactions per second. Bitcoin can't help you today. Transaction fees of 20 cents, 50 cents, or 10 cents, or unknown, make your project infeasible due to cost and uncertainty. Bitcoin can't help you there and won't anytime soon. You have a use case that really isn't related to money at all and has very little need for Bitcoin structure. Stork believes you should use, still use Bitcoin. You want to build smart contracts? Bitcoin is very awkward for that today. You might be, it might be better in the future, so Stork thinks you should wait. You want a different security mechanism than proof of work? Maybe for centralization fears, economic inefficiencies, or environmental considerations? Well, Bitcoin can't help you there right now either. All of these things, the transactions per second, the fast blocks, the yada 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 smart contracts, 
all those things don't fucking work. If you want to build those, build a centralized service on top of Bitcoin. Get people to buy in and then trade within your service there and then settle out to the blockchain later. I mean, look at these exchanges. Have you ever thought, how do these exchanges have so much volume? Well, it's because they're a centralized fucking service. They can trade hundreds, maybe thousands of trades a second. And then later on when you withdraw, they settle to the blockchain. But people trust them. That's my whole thing is once you decentralize the money, you don't need all of these stinking blockchains. Blockchain this, blockchain that. You can have centralized services as long as the money is trusted. The money is decentralized. And you notice in this, in that paragraph, there is no skepticism. Zero. You have a use case, build it and people should use it. Investors should not question you. Scientists or engineers should not question your fucking use case dreams. They're all dreams. They don't work. You don't need a blockchain for these things. It's so funny. Like they, he's like, Oh, blockchains can be used for all of these things. You have a use case. You're an entrepreneur. Well, it will work. Build it on a blockchain, trade it on shapeshift. <laughs> None of these things will work. Money is it. And that middle sentence there about if you have a use case that isn't related to money at all and has very, Little need for Bitcoin structure or Bitcoin structure blockchains. Of course, don't use a fucking blockchain, people. All right, I got worked up there. Let's get on to a couple Ethereum stories. Uh, Charles Hoskinson, he was originally from Ethereum. Then he went to proof of, or sorry, then he went to BitShares, which was the delegated proof of stake failure. He was involved with that. He left that project and he went to Lisk, which is a joke blockchain sales opportunity with no white paper. I tried to review them early on in this podcast, but they never published a white paper. So I could, there was nothing to really uh, criticize or to to investigate. And now he's back with the Ethereum Classic. He found the next scam to jump on board with. Well, his company just recently published a new paper about provably secure proof of stake. It is very long, very convoluted, very technical and scientific. There's lots of equations and subscripts and superscripts and footnotes and, and all these things. It's very hard to pick through. And to be honest with you, no one freaking cares. No one cares. The, you know, there's a big problem in science right now that... They, it's called like, um, the replication crisis or the replicate, replicatability crisis or something like that, uh, where up to 90% of studies in some fields are not able to be reproduced. The results aren't able to be reproduced. It started with psychology, but now it's going into, um, medicine is big in that and physics and, and some other things where you cannot reproduce these studies. But in this case, with this paper, no one's even going to try to reproduce it because no one cares. This is not, it's not even a thing that people care about. I mean, um, 
Some people in the Ethereum project might read through this paper, but I would say maybe 20 people. Um, I read through a few pages of it, and I was like, this is way too... Uh, compared to Satoshi's white paper. Very simple. Almost anybody can really go through Satoshi's white paper and understand it. At least start to grasp it. Where this, I mean, it's way too technical. It's almost um, purposefully complicated. And that's what I don't like about it. So, and you know, he's all proud. Charles Hoskinson, he's all proud that, hey, uh, Ethereum Classic beat Ethereum to this proof of stake thing. Well, nobody cares. If Ethereum goes to proof of stake, it's going to fail just like BitShares. It's going to fail just like NXT. All of these things are going down and Ethereum, I don't think wants to do that. They're probably going to stay with proof of work. Well, they'll have to hard fork for that too. So there might be three Ethereums, four, right? Cause classic will have to fork as well. Anyway, so, um, there, it says provably, but no one's going to try to prove it. <laughs> so, but there is some other news. Uh, Ethereum now was hacked again. Just when you thought it was safe to go back and buy some Ethereum, oh, they get DDoS attacked and the Geth clients get hacked or targeted. And it's funny because it came just on at the start of this DevCon 2, the Ethereum blockchain conference. And I, I don't know how much more evidence people need, but this technology is not ready. It is a testnet. It should be worth 12 cents, not $12. So yeah, Ethereum was hacked again and, and they, they froze all trading on these exchanges or at least withdrawals and deposits. I mean, look at the system. Look how centralized it is. They probably have some cut. The exchanges are getting some cut from the Ethereum foundation to be Johnny on the spot with these freezes. Because, you know, it hurts these exchanges. They don't want that reputation of being the people that freeze trading all the time. So it's it costs them money. It costs them customers. So the foundation probably is cutting them in on it. Uh, it's, it's a crazy world out there. But that's all I have for Altcoinville. Let's go on to the featured article. Featured article. Today's featured article is The Intellectual Yet Idiot by Nicholas, sorry, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. It's one of my favorite articles or blog posts or whatever you call it in the last probably six months. Uh, I linked to Taleb's Wikipedia profile in the show notes so you can check that out. He is the author of The Black Swan. You guys probably read that book or at least heard of that book. And lots of people say it's one of the most influential books since World War II. It talks about, you know, the um, extreme events, unpredictable extreme events that happen. And he says that we should be more robust against those. Like we should be designing or um, consciously thinking about having an economy and a society that is anti-fragile against those type of events. So this article, I just the whole way through, I was like, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. 
and I loved it. So I'm, I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs and then I'm going to read the last paragraph when he dis- de- defines these guys more. So the, the intellectual yet idiot is a guy that, well, let me just read it. What we have been seeing worldwide from India to the UK to the US is the rebellion against the inner circle of no skin in the game policymaking clerks and journalist insiders that class of paternalistic semi-intellectual experts from some Ivy League, Oxford, Cambridge, or similar labeling, label-driven education, who are telling the rest of us what to do, what to eat, how to speak, how to think, and who to vote for. But the problem is the one-eyed following the blind. These self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut in Coconut Island meaning they aren't intellectual enough to define intelligence, hence fall into circularities. But their main skill is capacity to pass exams, written by people like them. With psychology papers replicating less than 40%, dietary advice reversing every 30 years of fat phobia, macroeconomic analysis working worse than astrology, the appointment of Bernanke, who was less than clueless of the risks, The pharmaceutical trials, replicating at best only one-third of the time, people are perfectly entitled to rely on their own ancestral instinct and listen to their grandmothers with a better track record than these policy-making goons. Of course, all of these people, where do they congregate? They congregate in government at all levels. I mean, think about your neighborhood. If if you live in a neighborhood that has a HOA, a homeowners association, it's just like uh, a little government for your neighborhood. And who always congregates into those positions? The president or the treasurer or whoever. Who congregates into those positions? It's the people that want to control the neighborhood. They want to say what color you can paint your house. Where you keep your trash cans. Oh, that shed is too ostentatious. You need to take it down. Your grass got over six inches. You need to cut it. Whatever. I mean, it's it's so infuriating, these people. And then they can put a lien on your house, by the way. You know, they can go to the county and put a lien on your house. And then you can't sell your house. You can't refinance it. Because whatever, you have this lien on your house. But all these people, and that's just the smallest thing. Now all these people are in the, they're in the city, the state, and the federal government. And as you go up, the sociopath nature of these people gets concentrated. And it, so the, the highest levels of government, that's where the most crazy people are. I mean, are those the people you want in charge of economic policy? Healthcare policy? Spending policy, um, military policy, the crazy gets concentrated at the top. And that's how government works, especially democracy. These systems are built, I mean, they are, I'm getting off topic off this thing, but it, it just gets me going on this tangent here. The government, it's inefficient. So yeah, we have roads, but we have roads that cost a lot more and are way less maintained than they would be if they were private roads. Yes, we have social security, but people don't save. 
There's a lack of savings. And look at this QE. QE creates dislocations in the economy, malinvestments that create this very weakened state that any black swan event is going to come and knock over. So when you, the best way to have a economy and a society that is anti-fragile is to get the government out of it. Get the fucking government out of it. You might have slower, you might have slower technology advancement in one specific area. For example, let's say uh, smart TVs or solar power. How about that? Solar power is held back a few years without government subsidies and things like that. But the investment that was put into solar power would have gone into many other industries. And maybe we would have had tons of advancements on internal combustion engines, jet engines, their efficiencies or something. Maybe, uh, instead of putting all this money into drug research that, that treats symptoms instead of cures diseases, we would have had more investment into homeopathic remedies, understanding nature, understanding our diets, our gut genomes, you know, our flora and our gut. There would have been much more investment in those areas if, if we wouldn't have pumped it into the medical industry. So the government invests inefficiently and creates, it creates very fragile systems where the free market invests efficiently and it creates very anti-fragile systems. Banking for sure. Oh my God. It's so protected. There would be no banking industry that we have today without the government. And it's very fragile compared to the anti-fragile nature of like private banking, small town banking. One of the greatest things that excites me about Bitcoin is its sound money nature. And the sound soundness of the money is going to break down all of these walls that have kept up this banking system because it's super, super fragile. Look at around the world. We have bailouts, bail-ins, people worrying from from, uh, the Bank of Japan to the ECB to the Fed. Everyone's hanging on their every last word, waiting to do something. And there's so much stuff going on in the world that any little thing can set off a collapse-type event. I mean, the system is so completely fragile that we need to have something that lets these banks fail, that lets things fail. That you need to temper the steel. If the steel is the economy, you need to temper that every once in a while to make it stronger and less fragile. If you don't do that and you let it continually be hot and hot and hot, it's going to be brittle when you're done. And any little thing will break that steel. but It'll shatter. But if you've tempered it, with repeated dunks, you know, repeated slowdowns, maybe some bank failures here and there, some major company failures, maybe even a government failure. You, you temper it with those things and the economy gets more and more robust, more, more strength against those events in the future. Uh, but we, we don't let the, the economy function. I mean, we, d- we don't have a free price mechanism right now. We can't make economic calculations in this market. Economic, uh, the price 
is the way that the free market transmits information. And if you don't have a free market price for these things, then the economy gets completely out of whack. It gets off balance. And Taleb would say that it, you know, once the economy's off balance, any little thing is going to knock it over. And that is what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to build a robust system and avoid the weaknesses inherent in central planning. So anyway, let's go on to another part of this, this post. And in this section, he describes what I think of as almost like a new Politburo, you know, where these intellectual yet idiots are hanging around. So here you go. The intellectual yet idiot is a production of modernity. Hence, it has been accelerating since the mid 20th century to reach its local supreme today, along with a broad category of people without skin in the game who have been invading all walks of life. Why? Simply, in most countries, the government's role is between five and ten times what it was a century ago, expressed as a percentage of GDP. The intellectual yet idiot seems ubiquitous in our lives, but is still a small minority, and is rarely seen outside specialized outlets, think tanks, the media, and universities. Most people have proper jobs, and there aren't many openings for the idiots. So yeah, the, that's the the new power is the think tanks, the media, and the universities. And we've seen kind of pushback against all of those things. Uh, you know, the media, uh, the universities are seen as a complete racket nowadays. Most people don't need to go to university. The only people that absolutely need to go to university are people that want to get jobs that are licensed, like doctors, lawyers, uh, nurses, uh, all, all sorts, engineers, a anybody that has a license, right? You need to have a degree to get a license. So it's a big old racket that's all tied in with the government. Um, the media, obviously, we have alternative media that's getting bigger and bigger these days. So anyway, that was a good little part. All right, here's a good one. So the, the intellectual idiot has been wrong historically on Stalinism, Maoism, GMOs, Iraq, Libya, Syria, lobotomies, urban planning, low-carbohydrate diets, gym machines, behaviorism, trans fats, feudalism, portfolio theory, linear regression, Gaussianism, Salafism, housing projects, selfish gene, Bernie Madoff, and p-values. But he convinced he's convinced that his current position is right. And that is so true. Everybody, like, that's what I've been talking about, the central bankers. They are wrong every step of the way. If you look at their dot plots, where they try to predict where they think that interest rates are going and where they should be over the last eight years, they are so incredibly wrong. And people like Krugman and Bernanke and Yellen, they'll have these theories about how the the monetary system works. And every single time, they're proven wrong. They never see a recession. Yet, they have the right credentials. They're right part of the think, right think tank. They have the right media relationships. They went to the right universities. They're in the right circles. But they don't know anything. It's completely frustrating when you see this. And this hits the nail on the head because these guys... They've been wrong so many times, yet people, for some reason, still give them credence in the first place. Why would anybody fucking listen to Janet Yellen? Why? Or especially Ben Bernanke. 
And the politicians are the same way. They make promise after promise after promise. And they never follow through on their promises. Never. Zero percent of the time. Yet, we fucking believe in the next election. Oh, Donald Trump sounds really good. Oh, Hillary Clinton sounds really good. They fucking lie. They all lie. So why would anybody believe these people? Okay, let's get back to the article or the post here. It's really good. If you guys haven't read it yet, please do. You know, he says it how it is. He's, he's speaking right to the power and I, I, I really appreciated it. So check it out. You can find the link for it on my website, bitcoinmarkets.com in the show notes. Let's move on to Flashpoint. Flashpoint. This is a segment of the show where I talk about geopolitics, some of those black swan events, you know, maybe a collapse happening, some banking thing, maybe wars, trade wars, revolutions or, or uprisings, all sorts of stuff around the world. But today, <laughs> it's going to be short. Uh, all I have today is a insight into the Fed. And it comes via Janet Yellen's Jackson Hole speech. And I, I didn't, I didn't read the footnotes, but this guy did, John Maldine. He, he's, has a financial blog. And he's talking about footnote eight specifically. And in footnote eight, Janet Yellen talks about, or writes about, a kind of algorithmic way to set the interest rate. So putting the interest or monetary policy on autopilot. What is she trying to do with this? I don't know. I mean, she goes through and figures it out that after the 2008-2009 crisis, they would have had a negative 9% interest rate using this method. Negative 9. That's not possible. <laughs> banking would be destroyed. The entire banking industry, especially commercial banks. You know, where, the, where you deposit money and, and the bank gives loans out, you know, like your local bank. That would destroy them because no one would deposit money if they're going to get nine per negative nine percent, and no bank would lend money if they're going to have to pay the borrower nine percent to take the loan. So it would absolutely kill banking. So what is she trying to do? Um, I I see a narrative being built over the last year or so. She's been asked a couple times about negative interest rates. The first time she said, I don't know if that is legal, if we have that in our power to do. Then she came back a little bit later, so it was like, yeah, that is legal, but we would never do it. And then she came back, well, if it's a weapon or it's a, a tool that we have in our tool chest. And now she's putting this specifically in her footnotes of her speeches, not in interviews, not in testimony to Congress or anything. This was in her speech talking about algorithmically setting the interest rate at negative 9%. It's kind of scary. I don't know. It's building a narrative for sure. But it's also, I kind of sense some sort of reaction to an automatic monetary policy of crypto, of Bitcoin specifically. And they would never admit this, but all of these central bankers know about Bitcoin for sure. Just like they know about gold and silver. They know this stuff. Um, and Bitcoin and their term blockchain, they, it's kind of 
interesting to see that it's on autopilot. It makes it much easier. They don't have to have all these meetings to figure out the in interest rate. They just set it according to the data. But of course, then they mess with the data to get the interest rate that they want. So I think there's a little bit of that there. But mainly it's, it's to build a narrative for negative rates and negative rates are coming. They're, they're all around the world already. ECB, Japan, why wouldn't it be here? I think it's crazy to think that negative rates aren't coming here. And what happens to this whole fragile system that we've built here around the US dollar? And then it has negative interest rates. I, I think it's, it's going to totally destroy things, but. Anyway, that's the narrative that she's building. So see, that's all I have for the Flashpoint. Pretty short. And that's all I have for this episode as well. Thank you guys so much for joining me. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Head on over to BitcoinandMarkets.com. There you find all the show notes, all the links, as well as a QR code if you'd like to donate and support the show. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so on Twitter, at Ansel Linder, or via the website. See you guys next time. Peace. You've been listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Please like, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.